Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, True Believing Mormon. Now, most people who listen to this podcast have heard the expression, True Believing Mormon. What I want to do tonight is to look at this expression, look behind the expression, dig into this expression, and see if we can find out what a true believing Mormon really is. Now, as with most things, it depends upon the definition, but I think it's fair to say that in its current usage, true believing Mormon means a Mormon who believes what they're told to believe by the current leadership of the church, a Mormon who thinks what they're told to think by the current leadership of the church, and a Mormon who does what they're told to do by the current leadership of the church. That is generally what is understood by a true believing Mormon today. In other words, it is a Mormon who does not question what they are told by their church leaders, whether it be bishop, stake president, or up the ranks through general authorities to the apostles and to the first presidency. A true believing Mormon does not disagree with what is taught by the leaders. A true believing Mormon does not doubt what is taught by the leaders, and a true believing Mormon will defend, sometimes at all costs, what is taught by the church leaders. So what happens if you are a Mormon who, on one issue or another, has trouble believing something that is taught by the church leaders, who might have doubts concerning something that is taught by the church leaders? Well, in today's climate, you are allowed to have those doubts as long as you keep those doubts to yourself. The only person that you can talk to about your doubts is your bishop, who will, in all likelihood, have no answers to resolve your doubts, but simply refer you to reading the Book of Mormon and General Conference addresses, which will not resolve your doubts, but will at least give you something to do while you're experiencing this faith crisis on your own. I want to ask the question tonight whether a Mormon who does question the teachings of the church leaders, and who does so vocally, can in any sense be considered a Mormon, can in any sense be considered a good Mormon, and whether that Mormon can in any sense be considered a true believing Mormon. In the second half of this episode, we'll explore that question further, and we'll look at some quotations from Joseph Smith, the founder of the LDS Church, which seem to give room for people who do question the leaders of the church, for people who do seek to reason things out on their own, for people who are open to seeking truth beyond the parameters of Mormonism to be considered true believing Mormons. And in fact, at the end of tonight's discussion, we may conclude that those types of Mormons are really the true believing Mormons after all. But before I get there, I want to talk to you about some experiences I had shortly after I joined the church at the age of 18 back in 1978. When I joined the church, everything was new, everything was fresh, everything was exciting. I was learning so much about religion, I was learning so much about God, I was learning so much about the doctrine. I was reading so much, there seemed to be a never-ending supply of information that I could learn about Mormonism. And I studied, and I read, and I pondered, and I prayed, and I had a wonderful time doing so. I was taught, as a newly baptized convert, that we as Mormons were supposed to seek out knowledge, that we were supposed to seek out truth, that truth was what we were after. And I was taught, not only were we supposed to seek out truth within Mormonism, in other words, what the current leaders of the church were teaching, and what the scriptures taught, but that we were also even encouraged to learn about other religions and what they believed. I remember specifically hearing on more than one occasion at church that we were encouraged to learn about other religions because learning what they believed would better help us appreciate the truth that we had. Now that may sound a bit self-serving and it may sound a bit egotistical now that I'm repeating it 40 years later. But nevertheless, the idea was there that we were not restricted to learning only about our church and only about our religion and anything else was off limits. In contrast to this view about learning about other religions and learning about other truth, 
was my brother Cam, who was a Jehovah's Witness. He had become a Jehovah's Witness only shortly before I became a Mormon. Cam was about a year and a half older than I was, and you can imagine that we had some wonderful disputations on the subject of religion at our house. It didn't make any difference what the issue was. We fought about it. We quoted scripture back and forth. Sometimes these disputations were warm, even unto bloodshed. And we pretty much hammered out every single issue that there was. We never agreed on it. We knew the other person was wrong and that we were right. But we probably touched on just about every subject that there could be between the two religions of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. But regardless of the fact that we disagreed on pretty much every subject you could name having to do with religion, there was one overriding concept that Jehovah's Witnesses had that I took exception to. And the overriding concept was that Jehovah's Witnesses were opposed to their members learning about any other religion, attending any other church, reading any literature from any other religion. Now here I'm not talking about anti-Jehovah's Witness literature. Certainly as a Mormon, I heard the admonitions against reading anti-Mormon literature. I'm talking about just positive literature from any other religion, finding out what other religions really believed. This was a point of difference between our religions that I saw as significant. I remember back in Christmas of 1978, I decided to give my brother Cam a copy of the Book of Mormon. Now, it wasn't a really expensive copy. It wasn't one of those leather copies you can get at Deseret Books. Instead, it was a paperback copy, and it cost a dollar. So I thought I would splurge on the Christmas gift and get it for Cam. Now, this was a double whammy. First off, I'm getting Cam a copy of the Book of Mormon. I know what he thinks of the Book of Mormon. He's not going to like the Book of Mormon. But somewhere back in my newly baptized, every member of missionary brain is the idea that if he'll only read it and apply Moroni's promise, maybe even this died in the wool, Jehovah's Witness can see the light and become a Mormon just like his little brother. The second part that made this gift bad is that I gave it to Cam as a Christmas present. Now, anybody who knows anything about Jehovah's Witnesses knows that they do not celebrate Christmas, that they find it objectionable, they do not give gifts at Christmas time. So here I am, violating that precept of the Jehovah's Witnesses, giving a gift to Cam at Christmas, and not only am I giving him just any gift, I'm giving him a copy of the Book of Mormon. So maybe there was a little bit of a brotherly Mm, sticking the knife in and twisting it a bit with that gift. But still, I did hope that he would read it and that maybe he could be converted too. I remember sometime after I'd given him the Book of Mormon that I went downstairs to his bedroom. I wanted to argue about something else related to religion and for some reason there was a quote from the Book of Mormon that I was going to use in my argument with Cam and I wanted to use his copy of the Book of Mormon because... How better to get him into the Book of Mormon than to use a passage from the Book of Mormon showing him that his religion was wrong. I can't remember what the issue was. I can't remember what the passage was I was looking for. All I know is that I went to his room. He was seated at his desk doing something or other. It was nighttime, and I began looking around his room for the Book of Mormon. I say, hey, Cam, do you know where the Book of Mormon is that I gave you? And he doesn't say anything. He's busy doing what he's doing. So I'm looking through the different titles. I, I can't find it. I start looking through all the books again on his shelf. I still can't find it. And I said to him again, Cam, do you know where that Book of Mormon is that I gave you? And he didn't really answer. He didn't say, I don't know. He just didn't answer. All of a sudden, I had an epiphany. I knew exactly what Cam had done with the Book of Mormon. And the reason that I had this epiphany is because when I was younger, I had studied Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Specifically, I had read one of their books. It's one of their main books. It's called The Truth That Leads to Everlasting Life. It's a little hardback blue book in which they have some of their basic teachings. And I remember reading this when I was 12 years old. It was a very boring summer when I read this. But I remember reading through this book when I was 12 and finding a passage in it that says what Jehovah's Witnesses are supposed to do when they come across literature that is contradictory to their religious beliefs. And the answer was that they are supposed to burn it. That's where my epiphany came from. Cam, I said, you didn't burn it, did you? Cam, being a good Jehovah's Witness who I knew could not lie, said, well, I seized upon it. You did. You burned it. You burned it, didn't you? Cam confessed. He cracked like a nut under my grilling cross-examination. Yes, I burned it. He burned it down 
in the fire pit, in the backyard. Well, I was all 18 years old, full of righteous indignation. I stormed about the room, flinging my hands in the air, saying, I can't believe you burned the Book of Mormon I gave you for a Christmas present. The injustice of it all. The humanity. Why didn't you at least read it? Why didn't you at least read it like I asked you to do? And his response was, I don't need to get into the mud to know it's dirty. Well, that was a very clever response that I'm sure he'd heard from somebody at his kingdom hall. However, that was his response. I don't need to get into the mud to know it's dirty. Now, I tell you that story simply to highlight this distinction between Mormonism as I perceived it at the time, which was open, which was uh, exciting, it was all-encompassing, it could embrace all truth. The sky was the limit as far as new knowledge and understanding could go within Mormonism. Over here at the Jehovah's Witnesses, they would not even look at somebody else's religious literature. And in order to make sure they didn't look at it, they would commit it to the flames so that not only they were unable to read it, but nobody else could read it either. I remember a few years later reading the Watchtower magazine. Now, the Watchtower is the publication of the Jehovah's Witnesses. See there, once again, I'm reading Jehovah's Witnesses publications. Cam will not read LDS publications. Once again, Mormons are better than Jehovah's Witnesses, at least in my mind at the time. And in this Watchtower magazine, there was an article about what good Jehovah's Witnesses should do when they are given literature from other religious organizations. And there was a picture in this article. It was a photograph. It was a staged photograph of a lady who is obviously a Jehovah's Witness inside her house. And looking through the window of her house, you could see walking away what looked like a couple of Mormon missionaries. They had obviously just been to the house. They were leaving the house, walking down the front walk, and the lady had in her hand some religious literature. And the lady had a smug look on her face, and she wasn't exactly holding the literature. Actually, what she was doing was she was in the process of dropping it into the garbage can. So this article made it clear that any good Jehovah's Witness who receives religious literature from Mormon missionaries or from any source at all, including from their little brother as a Christmas gift, should discard it, get rid of it, get it out of the house, and if it's a particularly cold night in December, burn it in the fire pit. I held on to that issue of the Watchtower for many, many, many years because I could pull it out to make a point of the difference between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. The Jehovah's Witnesses will not look at anything that is not published by their own church. They will not read anything about any other religion. They will not search for truth beyond the confines of what they are told to believe by their church leaders. And once again, the Mormons were the absolute opposite of that. At least that was my perception. That was what I had been taught. That was what I believed at the time. Now, flash forward 40 years to 2017. And a true believing Mormon is defined today in the same way that a true believing Jehovah's Witness was back 40 years ago. A true believing Mormon does not listen to anybody other than their leaders when it comes to finding out truth. A true believing Mormon is not allowed to ask questions publicly about their religion. They are not allowed to challenge or doubt things that are taught by their church leaders. A true believing Mormon is not to seek for religious truth anywhere outside the correlated materials that are produced by the church and distributed to the members. What I did not realize back in 1978 is that the correlation program in the LDS Church had been instituted in the early 1960s, and it was taking a long time for it to get out to the end of the row, that in the small town in Washington, where I was baptized, and where I lived at the time, and where I went to high school, the correlation program was trickling out. And it would not be long after I was baptized before it swallowed me whole. So, much to my chagrin, the Jehovah's Witnesses of 40 years ago have become the Mormons of today. The Mormon Church, in this regard, has become the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, in the second half of this podcast, I want to look at some statements by Joseph Smith regarding being open to intellectual inquiry, regarding continuing to search for truth, regarding being open to receiving truth, from sources outside the church, in fact, from any sources 
whatsoever and compare those statements by Joseph Smith with statements from modern church leaders, which seem in many cases to say exactly the opposite of what it was that Joseph Smith said. The first of these statements has to do with the mysteries of God and whether Mormons should be seeking into the mysteries of God. I think that most of us who have grown up in the church or been a member for any period of time have heard this subject addressed with the admonition that we not seek into the mysteries of God, that that is somehow dangerous and we ought to avoid it like the plague. What Joseph Smith said was this, I advise all to go on to perfection and search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness. Now, when he said this, which is recorded in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 364, he was only reiterating what is said in the Book of Mormon, First Nephi chapter 10, verse 19, which says, For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the way, this isn't just in Book of Mormon times. It also goes on to say, as well in these times, as in times of old, and as well in times of old, as in times to come. That includes us. That includes today. Times to come is today. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. Now, in contradiction to that, the elders of the church after Joseph Smith and in more recent generations have been counseled by leaders of the church to leave the mysteries Alone, These are things that the elders in the church and the members of the church are not supposed to talk about. They are supposed to content themselves with the very basics that come from Salt Lake City. The correlated curriculum is all that they need to know and, frankly, all that they're supposed to learn about. And they're not supposed to go beyond what it is that is in the correlated materials. Now, in order to try and harmonize those two conflicting statements between Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon saying, hey, you should look into the mysteries of God versus what the modern church says, which is leave those mysteries alone, the first thing that happened was to redefine what a mystery was. Joseph Fielding Smith simply said that a mystery is what everybody knows already. Now, that may sound strange because a mystery is usually not something that everybody knows already. A mystery is something that people don't know. That's why it's a mystery. But here's what Joseph Fielding Smith said. The Lord has promised to reveal his mysteries to those who serve him in faithfulness. You see, the problem is it's in the scripture, so they have to deal with it in some way. And this is how he deals with it. The Lord has promised to reveal his mysteries to those who serve him in faithfulness. The gospel is very simple, Joseph Fielding Smith says. The gospel is very simple so that even children at the age of accountability may understand it. Without question, there are principles which in this life we cannot understand, but when the fullness comes, we will see that all is plain and reasonable and within our comprehension. The simple principles of the gospel such as baptism, the atonement, are mysteries to those who do not have the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord. So what Joseph Fielding Smith does is he now turns everything on its head and defines mysteries as something that everybody knows about in the church. They're things that every child who's the age of eight, the age of accountability, knows about. They're the very simple things of the gospel, like baptism and the atonement. And he says that they are mysteries because they are mysteries to those who do not have the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord. Meanwhile, he takes the things that are really the mysteries, the things that the ordinary member doesn't know about when they're the age of eight, the things that are not the simple principles of the gospel, and he puts those in a category that we are never going to understand in this life. We'll only find out about that in the next life. This is when he says, without question, there are principles which in this life we cannot understand. Now, that's a remarkable statement. President Joseph Fielding Smith says, there's things about the gospel we can't understand in this life. Not just that he can't understand right now, but that nobody in the church can understand. There's things about me you wouldn't understand, things you couldn't understand, things you shouldn't understand. I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. So, Joseph Fielding Smith says, the mysteries are really the simple things that everybody understands, even the kids understand it, and the real mysteries are things that nobody's going to understand ever. Now, one might think that it's the things that are difficult to understand that are the mysteries that are going to be revealed to the faithful. As Joseph Smith said, once again, I advise all to search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness. President Joseph Fielding Smith says, ah, eh, forget about that. These are things we can't understand in this life. 
No need to search deeper and deeper because you're not going to understand it anyhow. Now, Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, also tried to draw a distinction about mysteries. In other words, there's mysteries you can understand, which are the simple things, and then there's mysteries you can't understand, which are the things that nobody can understand and you shouldn't bother yourself about and you should leave alone. Here's what Bruce R. McConkie said. There is also a restricted and limited usage of the expression mysteries. It is more of a colloquial than a scriptural usage, and it has reference to that body of teachings in the speculative field, those things which the Lord has not revealed in plainness in this day. You see, once again, he's talking about a body of things that the Lord has revealed in plainness in this day. And Bruce R. McConkie, as in basically everything else he ever said, follows the lead of his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, and says, yeah, these principles of the gospel that are super simple and plain, well, we can call those mysteries because people outside the church don't understand them. So we'll call those mysteries, and those are the mysteries that you should concern yourself with, which is the things that are so simple that even eight-year-olds can understand them. But then there's a separate body of mysteries. These are the mysteries that are not the simple things of the gospel. These are things in the speculative field, as Brewster McConkie calls it, and these are the things that you should leave the hell alone. He goes on and says, It is to these things that reference is made when the elders are counseled to leave the mysteries alone. Now, both of these quotes from Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie can be found in the Book of Mormon Student Manual, currently published by the church and available on the church's website, Chapter 25. So this is something that is currently taught in the church, but you can see the way that Joseph Smith's counsel to search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness in the Book of Mormon's statement that he that diligently seeks shall find in the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well as in that time, as in times to come. In other words, it's an eternal promise that's supposed to apply today to believers in the Book of Mormon has been totally turned on its head by current leaders of the church. And it's all been done by redefining mysteries, not as a mystery at all, but as something that's simple, plain, and obvious. Those are the mysteries that we should concern ourselves with, are the things that are not mysteries at all. And the things that really are mysteries, we're going to contradict Joseph Smith and say, no, don't search deeper and deeper into those. And contradict the Book of Mormon that says that the mysteries of God shall be unfolded by the power of the Holy Ghost. No, forget about that. That's not going to happen. These are things you cannot understand in this life because if joseph fielding smith cannot understand something about the gospel that means nobody can understand it the second example that i want to give is a statement by joseph smith regarding doctrines of salvation this is from teachings of the prophet joseph smith page 374 where he says when things that are of the greatest importance are passed over by weak-minded men without even a thought i want to see truth in all its bearings and hug it to my bosom. I believe all that God ever revealed, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. So here Joseph Smith says that he wants to see truth in all its bearings, and he says that people are not damned because they believe too much, only they are damned for unbelief. This is quite a contradiction from statements from modern church leaders on the subject. There are modern church leaders who have taken the position that there are certain beliefs that are so fundamental to Mormonism that one must believe them in order to be saved, and if one does not believe them, one cannot be saved. Or conversely, there are certain false teachings that if one does believe, one cannot be saved and will be damned. For example, on June 1st, 1980, Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles delivered his famous speech at BYU called The Seven Deadly Heresies. These were a list of heresies that, according to Elder McConkie, if one believed them, one could not be saved. For instance, heresy number six had to do with the Adam-God theory, and this is what Elder McConkie said regarding that. The devil keeps this heresy alive as a means of obtaining converts to cultism. It is contrary to the whole plan of salvation set forth in the scriptures, and anyone who has read the book of Moses and anyone who has received the temple endowment and who yet believes the Adam-God theory does not deserve to be saved. 
These are strong words, but Elder McConkie doubled down on the forcefulness of this declaration in a collection of his writings called Sermons and Writings of Bruce R. McConkie at page 337 where he said, You talk about teaching false doctrine and being damned. Here is a list of false doctrines that if anyone teaches, he will be damned. So according to Bruce R. McConkie, there were certain doctrines that if one believed, they did not deserve to be saved, and if they taught these doctrines, they would be damned. That is how far afield current leadership has gotten from the original position of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, who stated, I believe all that God ever revealed, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. Example number three, Joseph Smith, Whatever you think of him as a prophet was continually teaching new things to the members of the church. He seemed to have some kind of access to new ideas, new information, new knowledge, and he diligently pursued new knowledge as well. Whether by conventional means of trying to learn Hebrew and Greek, or by unconventional means of praying his way through the Bible and providing inspired commentary throughout from beginning to end, which we know today as the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. But it seems to have been important to Joseph Smith to continually receive new things to teach. He said in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 364, quote, It has always been my province to dig up hidden mysteries, new things for my hearers, unquote. Now there's that word again, mysteries. And notice how he defines mysteries. He does not say, oh, these are the same basic principles of the gospel that every eight-year-old knows. No, he defines mysteries as new things. Well, what a shock. A mystery would be something new. Joseph Smith uses it in the normal sense. So based upon that, we can definitely conclude that when he said earlier, I advise all to search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness, he wasn't talking about things everybody already knew when he was talking about mysteries. No, he was talking about new things. Back to this quote, he said, It has always been my province to dig up hidden mysteries, new things, for my hearers. That is what the intellectual quest is all about, to learn new things. Things And that is what Joseph Smith said was his province, was to dig up the hidden mysteries and new things for my hearers. It's something he started at the beginning of his prophetic ministry, and it's something that continued up until his martyrdom at the age of 38 and a half. There was never a time when he was not digging up new things for his hearers. How is that going today in the LDS Church? Well, we only have to look at three hours of church every Sunday and ten hours of general conference every six months to see that our leaders have nothing new to teach their hearers. This is in stark contrast to what Joseph Smith declared was his province. And it is a further illustration of the intellectually stultifying atmosphere that has come to be the norm for the Mormon church. Another quote from Joseph Smith has to do with wanting the liberty of believing as he pleased. Now that's an interesting thing to be coming from the Mormon prophet. He wanted the liberty of believing as he pleased. He said it feels so good not to be trammeled. He said it doesn't prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine. This is a remarkable statement from Joseph Smith, and it's probably why it was edited out of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith when that compilation was made back in the 1930s by Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian at the time. We've talked about this in a previous episode. There is an episode in church history that has to do with the discipline of a member of the church called Pelatiah Brown. Apparently that was a popular name back in the 1830s. But Pelatiah Brown was teaching from the book of Revelation in an LDS congregation, and he was teaching about the beasts that are talked about in the book of Revelation, and he was giving an interpretation of the beasts. And the local church leaders didn't like what he was teaching about the beast. They thought he had his interpretation wrong, so they disciplined him. Well, Joseph Smith came on the scene and said, what are you guys doing? Come on, I don't agree with his interpretation of the beast in Revelation, but what difference does it make? And he reversed the discipline on Pelatiah Brown, and he talked about why it was that he felt it was wrong to discipline somebody because they believed something that was wrong. Now, in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, who compiled this collection, included the section about Elder Pelatiah Brown, and he included the part 
about his teaching about the beasts of Revelation. He included the part about Joseph Smith correcting him on the actual correct interpretation of the beasts of Revelation. But what Joseph Fielding Smith did was he omitted entirely the middle section of the story in which Joseph Smith says this, I never thought it was right to call up a man and try him because he erred in doctrine. It looks too much like Methodism and not like Latter-day Saintism. You see, this is kind of like I was looking at Jehovah's Witnesses versus the Mormons. Joseph Smith was looking at it as the difference between Methodism and Latter-day Saintism. He said it looks too much like Methodism and not like Latter-day Saintism. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be kicked out of their church. I want the liberty of believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled. It doesn't prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine. That is what was in the original record that Joseph Fielding Smith cut out when he included the story about Pelatiah Brown in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Fortunately, it's available in other sources, and where I got it from was a different publication called The Words of Joseph Smith at page 184. And if you happen to have a copy of Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, you can go to page 288 in that volume, and you'll see the story of Pelatiah Brown, and in the middle of the page, you'll see a series of asterisks, which marks the place that Joseph Ealing Smith took out the quote that I just quoted to you from the story. In another place, Joseph Smith said, I cannot believe in any of the creeds of the different denominations because they all have some things in them I cannot subscribe to, though all of them have some truth. I want to come up into the presence of God and learn all things. But the creeds set up stakes or limits and say, Hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. That's from History of the Church, Volume 6, page 57. So Joseph Smith wanted the liberty of believing as he pleased. He said it doesn't prove that a person's not a good person simply because they believe something that is wrong. And he said his big problem with the creeds was they set up a system or a statement of beliefs that restricted the ability of a person to push through that and learn more. Joseph Smith wanted to learn all things. And Joseph Smith did not like creeds because the creeds effectively said, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no further. Remember, it was Joseph Smith who enshrined in the temple endowment the idea of looking for further light and knowledge. That looking for further light and knowledge is a good thing, not a bad thing. Now compare these sentiments of Joseph Smith with what Elder David Bednar said in 2013 at a CES devotional for young adults in Texas in a talk titled, That We Might Not Shrink. This is from Elder Bednar. I pray the power of the Holy Ghost will be with each of us. Why? This is what Elder Bednar says. That we may think what we need to think. Elder Bednar leads off with the big one. Not only is it that we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do and believe what we're supposed to believe and feel what we're supposed to feel, but we are supposed to think what we are supposed to think. And what are we supposed to think? Well, it's what Elder Bednar tells us to think. I'll go on with a quote. That we may think what we need to think, feel what we need to feel, and learn what we need to learn, so we can do what we know we should do and ultimately become what the Lord yearns for us to become. For those of you who can't believe that Elder Bednar actually said such a thing, I've got the audio here and I'm going to play it. I pray the power of the Holy Ghost will be with each of us, that we may think what we need to think, feel what we need to feel, and learn what we need to learn, so we can do what we know we should do and ultimately become what the Lord yearns for us to become. I would have a hard time coming up with a statement by a modern church leader that is more antithetical to the sentiments expressed by Joseph Smith, that he wants the liberty of believing as I please. No, Elder Bednar says, you've got to think what you need to think. In other words, what you're supposed to think. In other words, what I tell you to think. Joseph Smith wanted the liberty of believing as he pleased. It feels so good not to be trammeled, Elder Bednar and I just want to note parenthetically that it is a strange thing that Joseph Smith was so averse 
to creeds. It wasn't the specific wording of the creeds, as was clear from a prior quote. It was the fact of creeds themselves, which set up boundaries. They set up stakes. They set up limits, saying, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no further, whereas Joseph Smith wanted to go on and learn everything that God had to teach him. It is strange that in a church whose founder was Joseph Smith, who expressed such sentiments regarding creeds, that we nevertheless have creedal statements in our church today. And here specifically, I'm thinking of the creed called the Proclamation to the World on the Family. Now, the church doesn't call it a creed. Of course, how could they call it a creed, given what Joseph Smith is on the record having said about creeds? But it fulfills the function in every sense of a creed. It is a creedal statement of belief. And every active member of the church knows that it is referred to over and over and over again in general conference, in classes, in the church, pretty much everywhere you can think of. And also every family is urged to have a copy of this proclamation framed and put on the wall in their house. This is more than is done with any passage of scripture. I don't know of any passage of scripture from any of the standard works where members are encouraged by the leaders to frame it and put it on the wall of their house so they can constantly refer to it and so that they can constantly live their lives by it. And so even though Joseph Smith hated creeds because they kept us from learning the fullness of truth about God, which from his point of view seems to have been an ever-expanding process, the church that he founded now has creeds of its own, which end up having the exact same negative consequence that Joseph Smith predicted. In this way, as in others, the modern Mormon church has become the kind of church that Joseph Smith came to overthrow in the first place. Here's another example from Joseph Smith on the idea of receiving truth and where truth can be received from. He was not of the opinion that truth only came through him, that truth only came through the Book of Mormon, that truth only came through Mormon-approved sources. Instead, what he said was this, one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism. Now listen to that. He's not talking about it being the side note or it's a side teaching over here. Or it's something we don't really talk about much. It's not that important. He says it's a grand fundamental principle of Mormonism is to receive truth from where? Joseph Smith answers, let it come from whence it may. So in other words, it doesn't make any difference where the truth comes from. The important thing about truth is that it is truth. And Joseph Smith said that one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth. Let it come from whence it may. Now this is very much in contrast to modern Mormonism, where truth is defined not by what it says, but by who says it. Leaders of the church can say the most ridiculous things imaginable, and it will be received by members of the church as truth, not because of the content of what is said, but because of who says it. Compare the statement by Joseph Smith about the grand fundamental principle of Mormonism being to receive truth, let it come from where it may, with what Elder Dallin H. Oaks said in 1985. This is the quote from Elder Oaks. Some things that are true are not edifying or appropriate to communicate. Wait a second, Elder Oaks, are you not aware that Joseph Smith said that one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormon is to receive truth, regardless of where it comes from? Well, apparently not, because Elder Oaks is now teaching something absolutely the opposite. What he says is, some things that are true are not edifying or appropriate to communicate. Readers of history, Elder Oaks goes on, readers of history and biography, he's talking about history and biography about Mormonism, Readers of history and biography should ponder that moral reality as part of their effort to understand the significance of what they read. Okay, well that was a bunch of gobbledygook. Elder Oaks was saying, readers of history and biography should ponder that moral reality. Well, apparently the moral reality he's talking about is that some things that are true are not edifying or appropriate to communicate. In other words, there's a reason for not telling the whole story. And the reason is that it's just not appropriate. And readers of history should ponder the fact that it's not appropriate to tell the whole truth as part of their effort to understand the significance of what they read. So basically you have Joseph Smith saying that it's one of the fundamental principles of Mormonism to receive truth and Elder Oaks saying that you shouldn't tell 
all the truth. So I'm not sure exactly how you're going to receive it if the person who knows it isn't telling it. But this seems to be a contradiction to me. In a similar statement, Joseph Smith goes even further and says, Mormonism is truth. And every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Well, liberty to embrace every truth is not what we're currently experiencing in modern Mormonism, as the quotes from modern leaders go to show. Joseph Smith goes on. The first and fundamental principle of our holy religion, see, he uses the same kind of language here again, is that we believe that we have a right, a right to embrace all and every item of truth, Elder Oaks, without limitation, or without being circumscribed, or prohibited by the creeds or superstitious notions of men, or, and listen to this next part, or by the dominations of one another. Let me read that again. We believe that we have a right to embrace all and every item of truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the dominations of one another. In other words, somebody who's a leader in our church who has dominion over us should not use that dominion unrighteously by keeping us from learning the truth. Mormonism is truth, and every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. At liberty to embrace every truth. Does that sound like what's going on in modern Mormonism today? That those who embrace Mormonism feel at liberty to embrace every truth? No, the truth is being actively hidden. Members are told not to seek out all the truth, to restrict themselves only to correlated church materials. And if they should unfortunately find out some truth that is negative toward the church, they are supposed to keep that truth to themselves and not communicate it. Because according to Elder Oaks, it's not appropriate to do so. And this is another example of how Joseph Smith's view is in direct contradiction to what the leaders of the church teach today. Joseph Smith's view of intellectual inquiry was what I learned when I was baptized into the LDS Church in 1978. But the LDS Church of today has now changed all that in direct contradiction to what Joseph Smith taught. Here is another quote from Elder Dallin Oaks, this one from General Conference, April of 2016, in his talk, Opposition in All Things. In talking about opposition, he said, Some of this opposition even comes from church members, some who use personal reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction, give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there is no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom, where questions are honored, but opposition is not. So not only have modern leaders said, this is all you can learn and no more, not only have they shut the door on learning, but if anybody should actually violate that direction and use personal reasoning or wisdom, which contradicts prophetic direction, i.e. what the leaders of the church tell you to do, that is not appropriate, again with the appropriate language from Elder Oaks. However appropriate for a democracy, there is no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom where questions are honored but opposition is not. Well, of course, he has to end with a bunch of bullcrap because questions are not honored in the LDS Church. You can ask them until you turn blue in the face, but you're never going to get any answers. And in an oldie but goodie statement from modern church leaders, 1979 President N. Eldon Tanner of the First Presidency said this in the First Presidency message for August, when the prophet speaks, the debate is over. But you see, this idea is completely contradictory to what Joseph Smith taught. The whole reason he hated creed so much was because they set up limits, said, Hitherto shalt thou come and no further, and you cannot learn anything more about God than what is contained in the creed. Well, what N. Eldon Tanner is saying is that whenever the prophet speaks, whatever he says becomes the creedal statement itself. The debate is over. The thinking has been done. You have to accept it. There's no going beyond it. That's all there is, and there ain't no more. In another statement by Joseph Smith, he was asked, what is the difference between the Mormons and other Christian sects? Here's what he said. I stated that the most prominent difference in sentiment between the Latter-day Saints and sectarians was that the latter, i.e. the sectarians, 
were all circumscribed by some peculiar creed, which deprived its members the privilege of believing anything not contained therein. So he sees the difference as being that all the Christian sects other than Mormons are all circumscribed or bound in by their creeds so that they can't believe anything that's not contained in the creeds. Whereas the Latter-day Saints are ready to believe all true principles that exist as they are made manifest from time to time. This was a very important principle for Joseph Smith and this is why he said it over and over and over again. That the most prominent difference between the Mormons and other Christians was that Christians are bound in by the creeds, whereas Mormons are not bound in by a creed. They are open to receiving all true principles that exist. It's a very different situation than it is today. And here, by contrast with this quote from Joseph Smith, I want to mention a statement by Boyd K. Packer to D. Michael Quinn from 1976. Here's what D. Michael Quinn says in his paper on being a Mormon historian and its aftermath. Quote, When Elder Packer interviewed me as a prospective member of Brigham Young University's faculty in 1976, he explained, okay, so here's the quote from Elder Packer, I have a hard time with historians because they idolize the truth. Can you imagine an apostle of Jesus Christ having a hard time with anybody because they idolize the truth? Isn't that what you would think an apostle of Jesus Christ himself would idolize? Isn't that something you would think they would encourage on behalf of its members, even the historians? And can you imagine something that's more different and contradictory to what Joseph Smith said? Once again, Elder Packer, 1976, to D. Michael Quinn, I have a hard time with historians because they idolize the truth. The truth is not uplifting. It destroys. This is what Elder Packer says. The truth is not uplifting. It destroys. Well, what is it the church has been teaching all along in order to be uplifting? Something other than the truth? Elder Packer gives a helpful example. I could tell most of the secretaries in the church office building that they are ugly and fat. That would be the truth. But it would hurt and destroy them. Historians should tell only that part of the truth that is inspiring and uplifting, end of quote. So Elder Packer believes that church historians should tell only part of the truth, only the part of the truth that is inspiring and uplifting, only the part of the truth that upholds and sustains the current church leaders in the offices they currently have. But what about the other part of the truth? Does it not have a place in today's church? Well, not according to the current leaders of the church, and once again, a very different sentiment from that expressed by Joseph Smith. And finally, this classic from Joseph Smith. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. This one made the cut. Page 316. We should gather all the good and true principles in the world and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons. So Joseph Smith does have a definition of true Mormons. We might even say that he has a definition of true believing Mormons, and his definition of true believing Mormons is a Mormon who gathers up all the good and true principles in the world. All the good and true principles in the world. Let them come from whatever source they may, and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons. Again, contrast this with what Boyd K. Packer said, in talking about the writing of church history, Boyd K. Packer said, There is a temptation to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting or not. Some things that are true are not very useful. Well, how does that last statement, some things that are true are not very useful, compare with what Joseph Smith said, we should gather all the good and true principles in the world and treasure them up, or we shall not come out true Mormons. Who is the true Mormon here? Joseph Smith or Boyd K. Packer? If Joseph Smith says a true Mormon is one who gathers up all good and true principles in the world, a Mormon who is ready to believe all true principles that exist, a Mormon who has a right to embrace all and every item of truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited in any way whatsoever, then it is hard to see how Boyd K. Packer is a true Mormon, or dare I say it, a true believing Mormon, if we use Joseph Smith's own definition. And not only that, any member of the LDS Church who agrees 
with Boyd K. Packer that there are some truths that should not be gathered up. There are some truths that should not be taught. There are some truths that should be hidden is also not a true believing Mormon if we go by Joseph Smith's definition. And who else's definition should we be going by if we are a Mormon than Joseph Smith's definition? So strange as it may seem, the LDS Church has turned the definition of a true believing Mormon 180 degrees from where it was initially when Joseph Smith founded the church. The modern church wants true believing Mormons to think what they are supposed to think, to feel what they are supposed to feel, to believe what they are supposed to believe, and then do what they are supposed to do. Joseph Smith, on the other hand, wanted the liberty of believing as he pleased. It felt so good not to be trammeled. He claimed it as a right, and the right of all Latter-day Saints, to accept all and every particle of truth, let it come from wherever it may, and he believed in this so strongly that he not only said it repeatedly throughout his lifetime, but even went so far as to say that Mormonism is truth. What do we take from this? Well, if I, as a Mormon, claim it is my right to receive all truth, let it come from whatever source it may, and to treasure up every good and true principle, then I am a true believing Mormon, according to Joseph Smith. And anybody who contradicts me in this, who is a member of the church, regardless of their position in the church, regardless of whether they are an apostle in the church, is not a true believing Mormon. And anybody who seeks to prevent me from finding out the truth, who seeks to hide the truth, who seeks to keep me from knowing where the truth is located, or after having found the truth, who prevents me from speaking the truth as I have learned it to be, such a person in the LDS Church is not a true believing Mormon. And if they have an argument about the definition of true believing Mormon, their argument is not with me, it's with Joseph Smith. It has been my lifelong attempt to follow this admonition of Joseph Smith, to seek out truth, let it come from whatever source it may, that has led me to this point in time where I am making this podcast. This is my blessing. This is my curse. Who am I? I'm Radio Free Mormon. Signing off the air.